0: So why Republicans are loving James Madison right now and Democrats are loving Roger Sherman? Oh, and about those little rubber armbands that just might change American politics as we know it. See, if it were up to James Madison you'd have a unicameral Congress. One box, right? Camera box. Just the House of Representatives, just that chamber. And that was the easiest one for the Constitutional Convention that met in Philadelphia in 1787 to decide about. They did that right off the bat. There was going to be a House of Representatives, and there were going to be elected by the people. Such as a term like that meant anything in the U.S. at the time, where South Carolinians there, the people meant people who were enslaved, people who were obviously men, and people who owned property. Whereas in states like Pennsylvania, New York, there was a little bit more voting going on. To whatever group each state considered the people and gave the franchise to the House of Representatives would be voted in that way. That was decided right off the bat. That was James Madison's plan, the Virginia plan, which he had discussed with Washington prior to the convention, which he tried to push through. But William Patterson of New Jersey proposed a different plan, and his plan, a New Jersey plan, was defeated. After that, Several members from smaller states indicated that if Virginia and Pennsylvania and New York got their way, they might just leave the whole thing. The compromise happened. And it was a bitter one. A Senate with two members elected by the whole state. And this Senate would have senators with longer terms. And that meant that instead of this whole body, this unicameral body that would be up every two years, the Senate would be elected every six years. And so different senators, different states would have Senate elections at each time. In this election, while everyone is noting the presidency, the health care bill, the deficit, John Boehner, whatever they personally want to notice, my first impression is that the election of 2010, being held 230 years later from the architects of the Constitution, reflects the compromise between the Virginia plan and the final Constitution months later. So if you are sympathetic to the Republican Party, you kind of like James Madison's plan right now, that we just have one chamber and we vote for it every two years. That way it can soak up that relevant public opinion. But if you're a Democrat right now, you may be liking the plan of Roger Sherman, kind of the author and the instigator of the compromise between the big states and the small state that allowed the Constitution to go forward. The Senate and the House of Representatives would share power within the legislative branch. The unicameral house, the box, according to that 1787 plan, reflected what is probably the mood of the nation. Frustration with the president, the economy, the spending, the foreclosures. That's exactly what the framers of the Constitution wanted this House of Representatives to do, to be very sensitive to a public opinion. The Senate, with only a fraction of seats up and with many members hiding behind their incumbency, I mean, not really hiding, just simply not up for election this year, was held by the incumbent party, despite a little bit of bleeding, because the opposition couldn't get enough seats couldn't defeat enough of these statewide incumbents coming up this year. Fast change in the House, slow change in the Senate, exactly what the framers 230 years ago had in mind. Yet, this is not what has always happened. The last time you had a House and Senate... Uh, Divided between two parties was the short-lived time between uh, Jim Jeffords' defection from the Republican Party and joining the Democratic caucus in 2001 up until the 2002 elections when uh, many Democrats were defeated that year. Prior to that, it was 1980 when, on Reagan's coattails, Republicans took the Senate. Howard Baker became majority leader, Republican Republican. While the Democrats still held the House. And it took Democrats six years to get the Senate back. That was the last time you had the situation that exists today. President and Senate of the same party, House of a different party. Now, the House gets the news story. It is, after all, what changed. And the pickup of over 65 seats is a pretty big loss for the President's party. More than what was projected. And since the House more easily reflects public opinion, more truly reflects what's going on, an election all over the country with all seats up at the same time, Republican Party right now clearly has the bragging rights about what happened in the 2010 election. Yet in the real politic, the talk of a political tsunami may be overblown. Now, Certainly, the size of the win in the House was huge. The last two House takeovers that we saw recently also led to Senate takeovers, or also were in conjunction with Senate takeovers, 2006 and 1994. The dramatic challenge Bill Clinton faced in 1995 came to be sure from Newt Gingrich and his House Republicans. But it was enhanced by the fact that you also had Bob Dole very much in control of the Republican Senate. Both houses are needed to pass legislation, though legislation involving money and budgets originates in the House. In the coming years, you know, we can expect a spotlight to be shown on the interaction now between these two legislative branches, which are always somewhat in conflict, even when they're run by the same party. Sam Rayburn said, the Republicans aren't the enemy. The Senate is the enemy. He said that to another House member. That's a quote that might become very relevant in the coming years. If you are the president and you could pick, what would you rather have? A House or a Senate? Well, the House is tempting. As I mentioned, it kind of has that element of a mandate from the people because it's every two years and it's an entire election all over the country. More impact. 65 seats. Easier to corral. It is. Easier to corral a house, which seems strange because there's more people. But despite the size of the house, there's actually less independent opinion in the house. Each member means less. The speaker and the committee heads have more power. The Senate, of course, is led by a majority leader, But senators just tend to be more independent. After all, there's only a hundred of them. And a whole state elects them. Still, for three quick reasons, even though the House would be tempting, I'd pick the Senate if I were a president. The Senate ratifies appointments and treaties. can make life very difficult for the president if you don't own the Senate. And then, of course, there's the filibuster. As I say many times on this program, I'm not a fan of the filibuster. I'm still not a fan of the filibuster, of course. I think it's an overcheck and an overbalance in a system that already has checks and balances and gives too much power to a body that already is not representative, the Senate. But the fact is, the filibuster is there, and it does make the Senate more powerful. And Therefore, a president is probably going to want to pick the Senate over the House. Lose the Senate, and you affect the presidency more directly than the House. Yet, that's not to say that this election does not represent a challenge for President Obama. The House is going to drive tax policy. They're going to be able to send bills up, and it's going to be up to the President and the Senate to veto or block the legislation otherwise. The news media is going to be focused on who's likely to be the new speaker, John Boehner. And the House will have investigative powers. It's not always used, but we've seen it in the past. Despite pressure from Democrats, Nancy Pelosi passed on investigating the activity of the Bush administration or trying to impeach Bush or something like that, even though many activists in the Democratic Party wanted that when the Democrats took over in 2007. It's not clear where Boehner's going to go with this. Daniel Isa of California is uh, one of the chairs of a key committee, Government Oversight Committee, that could launch investigations. So it can make life very bureaucratic and difficult for the Obama administration. I haven't examined any of the things I'm discussing here. You know, this is just kind of my first impressions right after the election. So I'll just talk about a, 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 a few different things. I'll take some time to look at this election, but I note that after 40 years of one party dominating the House, the Democratic Party. And that was from 1954, Sam Rayburn, uh, became Speaker, to 1994, when Tom Foley lost his own election and lost the House for his party and had to give up the Speaker's gavel to Newt Gingrich. Forty years. Gerald Ford, as a congressman in the 1960s, as a young congressman, who became minority leader and who pushed out an older uh, member of the House. He was an up-and-comer. Even Lyndon Johnson, although he's a member of the Democratic Party, appreciated Gerald Ford, saw him kind of as a Kennedy-esque figure and made sure to put him on the Warren Commission because he was so respected. And Gerald Ford was the last surviving member of that Warren Commission that investigated uh, JFK reflects how well respected among both parties that Gerald Ford was. Gerald Ford had a goal in the 60s, in the early 1970s. He wanted to become Speaker of the House. Well, looking back, it's a good thing that he became Vice President and then President because he never would have gotten the opportunity, most likely, to become been Speaker of the House unless he waited until 1994, 20 years after he had become President. Democrats held power there for quite a long time. But then, when Republicans took over in 1994, Democrats tried to take it right back with Clinton's re-election in 1996. They were not successful. Uh, Didn't really have much of a chance to take it back in 1998, although Democrats did gain seats. In 2000, they didn't mount really a serious effort. In 2002, the Democrats actually lost seats. In 2004, Again, busy with the presidential election, no chance of a takeover of the House. And it wasn't until 2006, so 12 years of Republican domination, and then the Democrats took over. Now, they've been in power for four years. So you had 40 years, 12 years, then four years. How does that stack up to a past historical pattern? Well, let's look at something else. Okay, 1919... To 1930, uh, the Republicans owned the House. This was after Wilson. Republicans owned the House. Uh, we could even go back a bit. In 1910, the Democrats had taken over the House from the Republicans and held it up until 1918. So, eight years there. Republicans held it for 12 years. Then the Great Depression hit. They lost the House. This is two years before Herbert Hoover would lose the presidency. Democrats, New Deal Democrats, own the House from 1930 to 1946, so that's 16 years. Hi, it's Bruce. Listen, we all know the news headlines are full of wild stories like how the world is tipping towards authoritarianism, all while somehow simultaneously freezing, flooding, and on fire. It's a lot to take in. But what if, instead of being on the brink of disaster, we're actually on the cusp? of a better world. If I've got your attention, then I highly recommend tuning to a podcast that offers a weekly dose of optimistic ideas from smart people. What Could Go Right is the acclaimed news podcast from the Progress Network. Zachary Carabell and Emma Varvalukas dive into the biggest news and most pressing topics of our time. From Climate Change to Politics, and make the case for a brighter future. Season 5 features fascinating guests like democracy scholar Yesha Munk on the hidden perils of identity politics, and NPR anchor Steve Inskeep about the importance of talking to people who differ from you, and what Abe Lincoln learned from those conversations that helped him unify the country. It's time to ditch the doom-scrolling polarization and start focusing on some of the things going right so check out what could go right wherever you listen to podcasts i'm jane perlez longtime foreign correspondent and former beijing bureau chief for the new york times i've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places somalia indonesia pakistan but nowhere as important to the world as china i mean china is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into montana We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-off launches April 9th. And then Republicans took over in a blip just two years. Democrats for four years, Republicans for two years again, and then Democrats had the 40-year stint. So you had 8, 12, 16, 2, 4, 2 again, 40, 12, 4. Okay, what have I accomplished by shouting all these numbers out? It's hard to draw any kind of historical pattern. There's clearly no historical pattern here for how long anyone's going to hold the House of Representatives. The 40 seems like an anomaly. I mean, there may be a trend you could say that after, you know, 20 years or so, it becomes a lot easier to hold on to the House because incumbents are so entrenched. But I don't see any historical pattern that we can name here. The House is up every two years and possibly, depending on political circumstances, every two years, it's anybody's game. So we don't know how long that the John Boehner Republicans, if you will, will hold the House. Another observation I have is you can certainly expect a lot of 1994-1996 comparisons. How? The 1994 midterm... May have helped or definitely did help Clinton in 1996. I mean, of course, we could say that maybe a 1994 win might have helped him even more to be, get reelected in 1996. So it's interesting, you know, kind of looking back at history and making those type of judgments. But at least Clinton played the 94 midterm going into his 96 re-election extremely well. But one comparison. Uh, doesn't always fit. I think this is going to be the most common comparison that everyone in the media is going to be making. Everyone beats up politics with history a little, I find. But they often don't go that far back. So they use the most recent example. And then you're only anchoring your theory with one example. And that's very common in the news media right now. So everybody's going to go back to Bill Clinton, 1996. Well, one thing that just doesn't work is I think Bill Clinton was kind of a person looking to triangulate his party from the beginning. He was kind of a modern Southern, a Southern Democrat, or at least wanted to be seen as such. And the Congress at that time was the same Congress that owned uh, the House for 40 years and was much more um, liberal than he. So from the beginning, he kind of had an opening, and then the, the wanted an opening, and then the midterm gave him that opening. So I think clearly this election, you know, you're going to see like, oh, this could be an opportunity for Obama. He might certainly use it as an opportunity, but in essence, it's a loss of political power. And there's no way to really spin that as something great for a president that got elected with uh, you know, winning this kind of states that he did and winning the percentage of the vote and defeating the opponent the way that he did. Now, it's going to create a series of challenges for the Obama presidency is not an immediate opportunity it might turn out that way but it's not an immediate opportunity. Also, Clinton lost both the House and the Senate and was alone in the federal government, owning the executive branch for the Democratic Party. Obama does have the Senate, and this might create a temptation, no matter how he's pledging to work with Republicans, to use that Senate and act in a very different way than Clinton did when he didn't own the Senate. Tax cuts and a repeal of health care will be two issues you can be likely to see off the bat. Eric Cantor, who's the uh, current minority whip and will be House majority leader, if everything seems likely, uh, and Speaker Boehner have both brought up the repeal of health care. And it's probably going to be something that's pushed by the Tea Party type elements in the Republican Party. And you can also expect uh, Congress to move to restore uh, Bush tax cuts. So I think both of those are legislations that there might might be early fights on. So you'll probably see the House doing something like moving to uh, enact a tax cut or restore a Bush tax cut with no type of income restrictions and perhaps the President or the Senate putting in something like, well, you don't get it beyond a certain income level and the fight's going to be over that. Uh, In terms of repealing health care, I think obviously the Democratic Senate but especially the White House are going to object to that. And it just depends how Republicans in the House approach it. One way they might approach it is simply to repeal the mandate that one must get health care insurance, which is a very unpopular part of the plan. Now, of course, if they repeal that mandate, they're going to undermine the whole system, the way the health reform works. I find it difficult to believe that the House Republicans will move to repeal the entire health care reform and not leave anything especially where in the legislation there are benefits to people, a protection against insurance companies uh, discriminating against uh, pre-existing conditions, the ability to have a young student who is up to 26 uh, go on to your uh, plan, uh, which is helpful to many, and the existence of certain protections like uh, pools, insurance pools for people with pre-existing conditions, and insurance pools for small businesses or, or unemployed. So uh, I, I wonder if they'll uh, go after those sort of things, but it could be that uh, the health care re- reform hasn't built up enough popularity to have any defenders anyway. Polster John Zogby, heard him on the NPR recently, and he had indicated that about this midterm election, half of this would have happened anyway. You know, meaning that, as we talked about so many times here, the historical trends, half of this would have happened anyway. You would have seen a loss in the House no matter what happened. If there were no health care reform, if the economy wasn't bad, you would have seen a loss of seats in the House. Now, how much is that? Is it really half of it is history, that presidents always lose seats, and half of it is the fact that the economy is bad, health care was unpopular, and things like that? That's hard to say. We do know in the elections of 1962 or 2002, you can gain seats or not lose that many seats. Carter didn't lose that many seats in, in 78. Uh, so, you know, it's, it, it's not always the case that you're going to lose a lot of seats in a midterm. And it might have something to do with ground factors and not just simply be this magic trend in history. It's just a very common trend in history. My only opinion is that if health care was more popular, if there was a provision that people maybe could grab on, and one of the things I talked about is either funding, let's say, cancer treatments or funding uh, or allowing people to buy into Medicare, you know, at 55 or older, something like that, something that might be a little more popular if the election was about that, you might have seen more of a stave here. If there was some type of big foreign policy achievement, from the Obama administration. You might have seen a stave here where you still might have lost some seats, but the loss would have been less. So I, I tend to agree with John Zogby that some part of this is just the history, and then the rest of it is the performance of the administration. Uh, one historical way that we know Zogby's right on this is that you know, even Eisenhower you know, lost seats, and, and the guy was pretty pretty popular. And uh, Kennedy lost a a few seats. It was still considered an achievement because he didn't lose that many. And he, his numbers were fairly high at the time. A couple other items of interest. The Alaska Senate race is interesting to me. And it's probably something that people are not noticing so much, but it's the strength of a write-in vote and the possible implications for the future of that. Okay, everyone's focused on the takeover of the House, but you're just having a candidate who is running as a write-in, Lisa Murkowski, the incumbent senator, who's been feuding with Sarah Palin, and Sarah Palin is backing the Republican candidate Joe Miller. It looks like Lisa Murkowski may have gotten the write-in votes to win. This is a huge achievement. Now, there was recently a Washington, D.C. mayor who forgot to file the appropriate papers and so managed a write-in candidate, uh, candidacy and won that election. Campaigns are getting better at this write-in, and they're getting better at educating voters. It used to be the common wisdom was, if you don't win that primary, forget it. You're never going to win a write-in campaign. People don't know to write your name. Well, she did everything from uh, sending out mailers with instructions to sending out these rubber... um, bracelets with the name Murkowski on it so that people would know how to spell her name because according to the law, you're really supposed to spell the candidate's name right now. Alaska Board of Elections were saying that they were going to look at the intent of the voter. So if they were close and it's so clear that you're obviously voting for Lisa Murkowski, they would count that as a vote. You know, if more states do things that way, I think you're going to see more writing campaigns right now. This is a U.S. Senate race. This is pretty big. You have a D.C. mayoral race, you have a U.S. Senate race. This is pretty big. And I think that uh, now, if a candidate doesn't win the primary, it ain't over. That's going to be a significant development that's sort of not being noticed because there's so much else going on today. The Tea Party, despite all the talk, you know, can claim a couple of of wins. You know, you have uh, a Rubio in in Florida. You have Rand Paul in Kentucky, and they were clearly you know, embracing the, the Tea Party. You also have losses. I mean, O'Donnell in Delaware was a clear case where without her, it's likely that uh, Mike Castle, very popular in Delaware, would have taken what's otherwise a, a blue state. Instead, that state went to the Democrats. It is more debatable, but probably true, that Harry Reid would have had a tougher time uh, if he was running against someone else but his Tea Party opponent. So I think despite all of this talk about the Tea Party, uh, that, you know, they had a very uh, limited showing. And we just talked about the Alaska race, where clearly someone from the Tea Party is probably going to get beaten by a more establishment Republican. So it's going to be questionable how much that they contributed to the general election win and then you know, what their impact is afterwards. How many, How much trouble are they going to cause for Boehner and the leadership? We'll see. Final thought. The 1914 election. This was an interesting election. It was Wilson's first midterm. And he didn't lose the House, but he came real close. And he lost a lot of seats in the Senate, too. This is where the eastern part of the country in 1914 was going strong for Republicans. And back then, you know, now we have to wait till late in the night to get the Western results sometimes. Back then, you had to wait till the next day. And so it wasn't until the next day when results from California and the Western states came in that it became clear that Wilson's party held the House. And that was considered a bit of a stave, even though the Democrats lost seats. So I see something similar here. It's kind of interesting that uh, on the east, you know, Pennsylvania, Ohio, Florida, Republicans were making big gains. Even in the Midwest, Indiana, Wisconsin, Republicans making gains. I mean, I'm talking about the Senate races in particular. What saved the Democrats appears in this election is the West. So, you know, Obama's looking to the West late at night, and you're seeing California. Barbara Boxer held on. Harry Reid wins in Nevada. Looks like Perry Murray. Uh will win in Washington state, and what was somewhat surprising was the uh incumbent Senator Bennett, who had been appointed to that seat and wasn't largely popular in the state at the time he was appointed, looks like he held on to his Senate seat in Colorado as well so a kind of interesting east west dynamic I mean I also think it's it's kind of amazing that in an election where it's a, the story of of the two thousand ten election is that the Republicans have taken a house it was a big You know, Republican year. And yet, Jerry Brown is about to become the governor of California and uh, the liberal guy who took over after Reagan was governor in 1974. So, those are my first impressions of this midterm. The website is My History Can Beat Up Your Politics, Uh, Facebook site, Archives 1499, and get. Hours and hours and hours of podcasts from this program. Want to thank you for listening. And if you like the program, tell someone about it.